Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA. And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK. This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene. With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture, along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale. What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. We've just been listening to The Habanera from the 1960 film Wild Wild Rose, directed by Wong Tin Lam and sung here by the inimitable Grace Chang, known as Geilan, in an arrangement by Ryochi Hattori, Japanese jazz musician of the mid-20th century. So already there, we see that this is a multinational collaboration because Grace Chang Geilan was a Mandarin-speaking Chinese woman from Shanghai who came to Hong Kong as a refugee. Wang Tin Lam was a Hong Kong Cantonese-speaking film director, and Ryochi Hattori was from Japan. So the story today we're going to be telling is about jazz as a genre, traveling around East Asia, from the 1920s onwards. And this film, which is from the early 1960s, comes kind of at the end of the period. But what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is peel back some layers of the onion, as it were, and see what it can tell us about global jazz and the movement of people and labor. Yeah, and the networks that girl the globe in this time ever more intensely. Yeah, that's kind of a truism. And actually, across our whole project, there's a kind of a thing going on about like the networks are always growing. And I think they grow at different speeds in different times. But in principle, I think something that covers our whole project is that there's some sort of intensification of travel, of information. And we're interested in the music part that's in those more intense channels. So let me just set the scene here a little bit. We're in a jazz club. This is a dramatic film. It's a retelling of the Carmen story. So as you can tell from the music, so much is obvious. It's about a tragic heroine who's played by the young Grace Chang, who at that point was like the number one woman songstress in Mandarin speaking cinema. And then it's Mandarin speaking is an important detail. We'll come back to that. And it takes place in Hong Kong. 
in the 1950s. And so Hong Kong in the 1950s is a really special place. It's an outpost of the British Empire. It's on the front line of the Cold War. And it's a place where people and music come together in particular ways, but it's also got a false bottom. Hong Kong does, right? Because if you pull up the floor, you look down, sorry if I'm going to push this metaphor a little bit, you see China before the revolution because of the emigres from Shanghai who came there. Like Geilan or Grace Chang, who came to Hong Kong as a child with her father from Nanjing. He was a nationalist official. And he, after the revolution in 1949, he became a refugee in Hong Kong like, like so many others. Just to finish setting the scene, the music is not particularly Chinese, right? The music is jazz. It occupies a sound world that's akin to jazz. But I remember the first time that you played this clip for me, for someone who comes out of the jazz tradition or comes out of jazz training as a player, there's sort of head-snapping left turns and sudden unexpected detours and stylistic and you know different sound markers that signal late 19th century opera or that signal jazz or that signal um, Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Cuban rhythms. Yeah. So there's a Latin thing going on. In my notes here, I've written the word fractured. And I think that that fracture tells us a story about jazz in East Asia and global jazz. And some of our listeners may have already been exposed to the idea of global jazz. Some may have not been and will Definitely. I hope we're opening some ears here about what jazz is. Jazz is not always what you think it is. And jazz is what the people who make it say it is. If they say it's jazz, it's jazz. And that's these people would have said that that was jazz, what they were doing. In the fracture, you hear a lot of Latin. And that's the global mambo craze is what that is. And in fact, a previous film of Grace Chang's was called Mambo Girl. And it was just a bunch of mambo numbers. So it was kind of like a vehicle for mambo numbers because you remember like uh, West Side Story, yet that, that, you don't remember West Side Story, but you know, right. West Side Story, 1956, whatever. Da, 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 mambo, right? That wasn't, that didn't come out of nowhere, right? That, you know, Sondheim and Bernstein, they didn't just make that up because in those years, the mambo was the thing. Yeah, so that's actually reminding me of a passage in a musical autobiography written by the American rock drummer Mickey Hart, who played with the Grateful Dead for decades upon decades. He grew up on Long Island in the 1950s, the son of um, a competition snare drummer. So at the same time that he was going into New York to take snare drumming lessons, he was also hanging out in the Latin clubs of East Harlem. And it's a beautiful lyric passage right about the same period, the mid-1950s, where he talks about the sheer ecstasy of dancing Mambo. So there you have it. The Mambo meme or the Mambo craze is something that's very audible in this film and not only this film and kind of links whatever that jazz is that you're hearing with the left turns you were talking about, right? Whatever that jazz is, it is linked to a kind of global Afro-Caribbean craze. And maybe in a later episode, we could talk about how conventional histories of jazz are a little uncomfortable with that. And don't talk about it so much. But you can see that whatever it was, it was such a big deal that it echoes all the way to Hong Kong, no problem at all. And I can tell you, it echoes equally to Kinshasa in Central Africa. But it's fractured, right? It's like split up. 
it's I'm trying what I'm trying to get at is like a cubist painting where things don't things are not as realistic. You know, the, the image is somehow fractured and in pieces, and that's a little bit how that music comes across to me because you can really hear the sort of switches of register or style or whatever you want to call it. It's like reflecting off of different facets of refracting in different ways. Yeah. Refracting. So this it's a refracted kind of jazz. Another interesting element, just to keep setting the oral scene here, that listeners probably picked up, is that Grace Chang's voice is partially the voice of the of the Chanteuse, and partially it's got this growling thing going on. And the first time I heard that, I was I was uh, not aware of where it came from, and then somebody filled me in that that's a vocal technique that you might hear in certain genres of Chinese theater. So she's bringing that in to this jazz setting. And just to kind of finish the scene setting, I want to talk a little bit about the arranger, this Ryoichi Hattori. His biography really encapsulates two things. First of all, a history of East Asia that we don't talk about very much, and also the jazz history of East Asia, because it did kind of emerge in Japan. Like so many Westernizing things, jazz emerged in what we would identify now as jazz emerged in Japan in the 1920s, pretty much in the absence of African-Americans. So that's important to understand that this it happened by itself without any direct contact. Yeah, via some kind of exposure other than players coming there. Yeah, that's not to say that there weren't a few players running around East Asia very early. But generally speaking, and this is a, another shout out to that book by Michael Denning that we're so fond of. Um, Noise Uprising, yeah. Noise Uprising, thanks. That it sort of talks about the sort of spontaneous combustion of all this kind of, it's, you know, spontaneous combustion of these kind of dance musics, if it's fado or if it's jazz or if it's tango, high life. It's all kind of coming up at the same time. And Hattori is a young man in, in Kobe in Japan in the 1920s, and he hears Filipino, a Filipino jazz band. The Philippines at the time is a colony of the United States. So there's a bit of the, you can see the network coming from. I mean, here's this Filipino band that changes his life and he becomes a kind of young lion of Japanese jazz. And then when Japan starts to set itself up as the imperial power in East Asia, Hattori is right there, right? So he has a big career in Japanese-occupied China, doing film scores, working as a jazz musician in Shanghai, all this kind of stuff. So you had jazz like during World War II, right? So this is the other side. And they've got their jazz too, and that was what Hattori was doing. So that's kind of that's another kind of a surprise. Yeah, because the story that we get in the conventional jazz histories is that jazz was a very big part of the Allied war effort, particularly sort of reified as an American export of American small d democracy and cooperative collaboration, which was going to somehow musically as well as in terms of arms production, win the war for freedom. And jazz big bands enlisting en masse so that they could just put on the uniform and keep playing for the troops and playing all over Britain and liberated France. But it's a very Euro-American-centric jazz story of that era. And you're talking about a Pacific Rim story. It is a Pacific Rim story. And I think that bit about the role of Japan as imperial power in that short period from the early 1930s until 1945 is a story that after the war, people on quote-unquote our side of it, of the Cold War, weren't really too, well, actually on both sides, were not too keen to talk about. 
to talk about what role Japan had played as a kind of cultural, exporting, unifying context in this area. And so what you get is these sort of untold stories about people like Hattori, who then reinvents himself as a film composer in 1950s Hong Kong. And just to wrap that up, the film itself is part of a genre of films that were made by these sort of big studios in Hong Kong in the runs out around the end of the 1960s. They were shot in Mandarin Chinese, what the Hong Kong people call Putunghua, the dialect of Beijing, to be exported to the non-communist Mandarin-speaking Chinese populations who are also all over East Asia that we don't also often think about. So we're talking about Taiwan, kind of obviously, but we're also talking about the Chinese-speaking population in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Vietnam, all of these people in the non-communist Sinosphere, as we would say, and in, in a more academic way, are consuming these films. And this film is made for that population. And it is therefore reflecting a certain kind of Western side of the Cold War, Atlantic side of the Cold War sensibility. So this is not a film, this is not a film that would have been received in mainland China at all. It's also roughly contemporaneous with Voice of America and the various tours by, again, by actually often by North American jazz musicians sponsored by Louis Armstrong in Africa, Duke Ellington in the Far East, uh, kind of being sponsored by the U.S. government as a, as a performance of democratic egalitarianism. And I, very performative. And who actually funded those tours? Others have written about the deep irony there, right? Yeah, the deep, deep irony, yeah. About Ellington and Armstrong touring the world to advertise the United States as the land of liberty when Jim Crow still was reigning in the South. What's interesting about this jazz club with its Mandarin speakers, so that's a bit jarring, right? They're Mandarin speakers in Hong Kong. In fact, that's just not right. That wouldn't happen because that's not the language of Hong Kong. So there's something kind of imaginary about it. What's interesting about this is that none of that is playing a direct role because there aren't any African-Americans in the picture. But there's an object. Yeah, there is an object. <laughs> so so before we started recording, we were talking about this. Chris, tell me a little bit about the guitar that she is playing. It's another one of those detours where it, it's a reference like Carmen backed up with a mambo, backed up with a swing jazz harmonized chorus that it's a visual reference specifically to the guitar she's playing which is a guitar made by the national guitar company which is a north american guitar company made entirely of steel that has been chrome plated the company's called national the particular kind of guitar if you see it in the clip if you go to the show notes and look at the clip it was designed as the world's first self-amplifying guitar. It has a steel body and a wooden neck, and it has three spun aluminum cones underneath the bridge, just like the subwoofer of bass bins in someone in the back of someone's car. And it's a purely acoustical instrument, which is quite loud and was intended to be self-amplifying, acoustically self-amplifying. It also has a very distinctive sound, and it's a sound that I mostly associate with the musician that we're going to talk about in the second half of the podcast today, recording in Texas and Mississippi about 30 years earlier. So it's another one of those sort of refractions of this worldwide material culture of music that's driven by things like 78s and national tricone guitars 
and sound film shot in Hong Kong jazz clubs. So the people might not be traveling, but objects can travel. And I think that's really important to think about is how objects, commodities, stuff gets shipped around. And so at some point, I presume it was the director, or maybe it was uh, Hattori, decided to put this guitar in her hands. And it's like a marker of this global Caribbean culture. Global Caribbean, global, global, Af- global African. So, I mean, I'm sure we could come up with a, a proper academic term for it. But what it is, it's just interesting to follow that detail along. And what's nice about how we're working together is that I've this is one of the it's one of the postcards that I've worked on more intensely myself, and I'd never clocked that. And then you said, wait a minute, that's a tricone, national tricone guitar. And I, and I said, what? What do you mean? And so those are the kind of discoveries that you make when you look carefully at these objects is that you can see that they bear witness to this kind of, this kind of traveling around. Yeah, it takes it back to that metaphor you said about sort of peeling back the floor and looking at what's beneath the surface of 1960, late 1950s Hong Kong. And, and you get beneath that and you see that there are still layers upon layers of experience and association in these artifacts like this film from 1960 or the recordings we'll hear from 1936. And what we see or hear on the surface is a surface underneath which there are strata upon strata of meaning and association and communicative intention. Yeah, and other places, right? So underneath this, and I kind of hinted at that before, underneath this jazz, this imaginary jazz club in Hong Kong is... 1930s Shanghai. I think listeners can can call that into their mind's eye. Maybe the the Bund, you know, the big road down by the by the water in Shanghai, the big buildings, the bustling capital of westernized East Asia. Yeah, it looks like an imperial capital. And Hong Kong definitely didn't look like that in the 1950s and 60s. Hong Kong was a much more modest place at the time. There was still, you know, through the 1950s, Hong Kong. If you had a view of Hong Kong, you might see as many shanty towns as you would see big buildings because of all the refugees who, who had come in there and the quite significant poverty and the movement of people into the city from the countryside, which I think is also playing a role in this film. Because just doing a little reading around Chinese film in the 1950s, I learned one common theme is the sort of movement of young people from rural to urban settings and the melancholy that goes with being torn away from your family, from the family structures, from the village. And and there are different Hong Kong films. Some look at the movement to the city as a moment of loss and sadness, and other films look at it as a moment of opportunity. Now here, the Carmen stories superimposed upon it, so whatever's going to happen to the main figure, it's not going to be good. We know that. And so there's a little bit of, there's that feeling of loss that comes from coming into the globalized city. So maybe we shouldn't always think of the globalized city as a super positive thing, but think of it also as a, as a thing that represents all the downsides of modern life, poverty, cramped living conditions, exploitation. So exploitation is definitely a theme in this, in Carmen, and it's a theme in this film. You know, one of the men is, is a pimp and this, you know, and he, beats up the other guy and you know so there's and that's by the way in some of the other grace chang films that's also a theme like in mambo girl she's wandering around hong kong it's she's the middle class girl who discovers that she's been adopted and she's looking for her real mother who works as a cleaner in the hong kong nightclubs and she wanders around hong kong looking so she suddenly sees the global city 
for what it is, which is like a dangerous place full of exploitation. It's putting me in mind of a film that may be familiar to some some of our listeners. One of the great music films of that made the worldwide reggae phenomenon happen in the 1970s, which is a film starring the then unknown singer Jimmy Cliff called The Harder They Come. It was the first full-length fiction film shot on location in Jamaica in 1971-72. has an unbelievably fantastic soundtrack of period ska and reggae recordings. But it's in part the story of a young rural kid who comes down out of the Blue Mountains, played by Jimmy Cliff, and he comes to the city and he becomes first a recording artist and then shortly after a criminal. And he becomes this sort of Robin Hood character. And there's tremendous ambivalence about the city because of the opportunity that it presents and the exploitation and loss that it represents. And it plays out in the against the backdrop of really documentary level filmmaking about this city, this exploding urban environment in a moment of transformation, as with Hong Kong about a decade before. So maybe that theme of the kid from the rural area coming into the city is a good bridge to our next postcard coming right up here on Sounding History. And we're back. And we've just been listening to the great Robert Johnson, Mississippi Delta blues singer, recording in San Antonio, in a hotel room in San Antonio in 1936, a song called The Walking Blues, which is an absolutely iconic song, which was covered by rock and blues musicians in the 1960s and 1970s. Robert Johnson is an interesting case of someone who was always framed as this immensely mythic, romanticized, tortured, suffering artist type of Robert Johnson. His older mentor, Sunhouse, very famously claimed that the only way that Robert could have become so good at playing the guitar was because he had sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. It's not the first or the last iteration of that crossroads trope in the arts as a whole, or in music in particular, or especially in music and expressive culture in the African-American South, because that comes out of beliefs about the Orisha of West Africa and Legba, the Orisha, who, who is the god of chaos and the god of the crossroads. It's also the, It also gives the title to a film that was made in 1987 by the really wonderful film director, Walter Hill, who did The Warriors and The Long Riders, this is not such a great film. It's called Crossroads. However, it does open with one great sequence, which is a sepia tone sequence without dialogue in which Robert Johnson in 1936 walks down the corridor of a hotel in San Antonio and he walks into a hotel room and he's met by a white A&R man who's based on the famous talent scout Don Law. And Robert is told to go into the other bedroom of this hotel suite where they've set up a makeshift recording studio with a single large diaphragm ribbon microphone and to play his best. And Robert sits down, and this is this is an anecdote which became part of the myth, but which is also truthful. It was reported by Don Law. Robert sits down, picks a straight chair, and sets it facing into the corner of the hotel bedroom. So he's facing away from the room. He's facing into the corner of the, of the wall, the 
the 90 degree angle where the walls meet. And he begins to play and sing and the acetate disc cutting machine in the other room begins to revolve. And we hear Ry Cooter's fantastic uh, rendition of Robert Johnson at this moment on this soundtrack. Now that's iconic for a couple of reasons. Don Law told that story and the story was always when I was a callow young blues musician instead of a callow old blues musician as I am now. It was emblematic of this is how tortured and shy Robert was. He was so shy that he had to face away from the listener and face into the corner of the hotel room. So this moment became iconic, not only in Don Law's storytelling, but it was also iconicized in the Walter Hill film, in the opening sepia sequence in that otherwise forgettable film with Ry Cooter's wonderful guitar music. But it also was captured most iconically as a, a lovely painting on a gatefold two LP set issued by Columbia, a reissue on LP of Robert's 1936 and 37 sides. And we'll put these images in the show notes because they were absolutely a touchstone for people like me. On the front cover painting, Robert is sitting in a hotel room. He's sitting in a straight chair with a guitar in his lap, and he's facing into the corner of the large diaphragm ribbon mic directed into the corner. Mythically, because he was so shy, he couldn't bear to face anybody else or see anybody's faces. And then the back cover of the same LP is a, an equally really kind of beautiful painting of Don Law and his engineer in the other room of the hotel with the acetate disc cutting machine. So let's talk about that technology piece because we were talking about the guitar in the jazz club. So I'm not I'm interested in the microphones and the wires in the the picture. So you you painted the picture for us of the myth of Robert Johnson that he's like this tortured genius sold his soul at the crossroads and that's itself kind of an interesting musical trope that you can go lots of different directions with. You pointed out the more obvious West African once and then in the popular high art imagination there's there's Beethoven or Paganini or the soldier's tale the Stravinsky the soldier's tale yeah. exactly and when you get on to Robert Johnson as anyone who's taught university students of a certain age knows that it's kind of shorthand shorthand for what's the really true authentic in music is the outsider this is the touchstone yeah this is the touchstone he's so tortured it must be real and because it lies underneath all that 1960s rock and roll that is quite important to people of a certain age it's even amplified but in that picture the picture kind of punctures the myth because i don't think he's facing the corner because he's shy he's facing the corner because he knows how technology works exactly exactly so in the back cover of this lovely gatefold painting, Don Law and his engineer are there, and they've got a portable acetate disc-cutting machine. And there are actually two, because it was common to do a take and then run a second machine. And this is literally, looks kind of like an old-fashioned LP record player. It has a stylus, but instead of playing back vinyl or shellac, it's cutting into a disc that is covered with acetate. And it's actually, they call it a, a lathe. It actually carves the groove as the... The dynamic electrical microphone, which is a big change in the 1930s. It's, the acoustical recordings in the 1920s were made with acoustical horns, like the old His Master's Voice nipper and His Master's Voice Victrola. But in the 1930s, the technology of the electrical microphone transforms the possibility of recorded sound. It expands the dynamic range louder and can capture dynamics that are softer. It expands the overall registers which are available, and it changes what sounds good on records. 
So here we have kind of a link up to another big theme across the podcast and the book project that's going along with it, which is music as data. And it's important to remember that what Robert Johnson was doing there was not magic. Well, it was magic. I mean, I, I'm not here to tell anybody that their aesthetic impressions are right or wrong. So it is magical in many ways. But what was going on there was the kind of commitment to data of a kind of musical practice, right? So that it could travel around. And a sophisticated command of the available technology. There's this myth of Robert Johnson sold his soul to the memo to the devil, this, this poor tortured soul. But Robert Johnson was a second generation blues musician. And much of what he learned about how to play the blues, he learned from recordings made by the first generation players who had been born anytime between the 1860s and the 1890s. Those players, the Charlie Pattons and Henry Thomases, might not have ever heard anything except live performance of pre-blues. But Robert was able to send himself to school on the 78s of people like Charlie Patton and Henry Thomas, the same way that Charlie Yardbird Parker studied the earlier tenor saxophone improvisations of Lester Young, the way that the guitarist Buddy Guy studied the recordings of Muddy Waters. So in this image, in this gatefold image, we see technology as an instrument in new creation. Right. And he sent himself to school exactly the same way that Ryoichi Hattori did in 1930s Kobe in Japan. Sure, he heard some live performances by Filipino traveling jazz bands, but he also heard the records that were moving around. And so that's the global connection there. You got Robert Johnson in the Delta, in the Mississippi Delta, but you've also got some guy in Japan hearing it and also taking a musical impetus out of it. Exactly. Yeah. And the final kicker to this, and this is where we, it loops back to Rai Cooter, who is some of the best, he, he's some of the best moments on the Crossroads soundtrack. Cooter said, that wasn't Robert being shy. Listeners, if you're looking at the image in the show notes, or if you can kind of picture it in your mind's eye. Cooter said, he's not facing into the corner because he's shy. He's facing into the corner because he understands the acoustical phenomenon called corner loading, in which when you face a tenor voice and a baritone guitar into the corner of a wallpaper and plaster room, what happens is that you amplify the bass frequencies. And so Robert is quite consciously putting the microphone in the corner, facing into the corner, driving that newly dynamic electrical microphone in a fashion which makes a sound, which itself is sculpted, highly intentional, and highly sophisticated. So he's playing the room. He's playing the room. He's playing the room. So the room, the studio, the resonances that are coming there. And I think also we live in an age of technological solutionism is what the fancy word for it is. That like everything's got a technological solution and everything is always better. We live in the age of Moore's Law so that, you know, your computer gets twice as good and half as expensive every, yeah, I wish. But, you know, so we look at an artifact like the Robert Johnson recordings and we, we look at it as if it's quite primitive. And I'm afraid to say that probably stereotypes, right, about Robert Johnson also play into that because we think, you know, a bluesman from the de Delta, what's he going to know about acoustics? But the truth is, in its moment, that is red-hot technology. Absolutely red-hot technology, a highly sophisticated understanding of how recording technology is its own medium separate from the medium of a juke joint or of a concert hall. And as a matter of fact, although this was not part of the myth that I grew up with, we can think of Robert Johnson like Ryochi Hattori, as a pop musician whose goal is to use all the available resources, musical, expressive, material, sonic, and technological, 
to succeed. Before Robert died, we are told, before Robert died, he died. That's another part of the myth. He was, in fact, poisoned by a jealous husband. It's claimed that before Robert died, he was actually playing around the Mississippi Delta in 1939 with an electric guitar and with a combo, with an electric combo, not solo, but playing with what we would now call a post-war electric blues band. And Alan Lomax, who I'm sure we will get to over the course of this podcast, Alan Lomax actually went looking for Robert because he'd heard the stories about Robert and Lomax loved that kind of Mississippi Delta mythography. He went looking for him to bring him to New York for the, a series of concerts he was promoting at Carnegie Hall called Spirituals to Swing. And by the time that Lomax got to the Delta, Robert was already dead. And so Lomax found Muddy Waters instead. <laughs> and I met Muddy Waters, and I heard Muddy Waters play the walking blues. And the rest is history, I wanted to say there. So if the Hong Kong films are a little bit about people coming from rural the rural into the urban. That story you just told us about Alan Lomax is about the urban going out in the country and looking for something. And that's always been really interesting to me, kind of authentic blues, country music's the same deal. People seem to want to believe that there's this real music out there somewhere that's kind of undisturbed and that a folklorist, I suppose someone like Lomax you would call a folklorist, kind of a loaded term these days maybe, but like a folklorist goes out into where the folk are. And finds the authentic. And finds the authentic. And I think the story you're telling here, if I'm, if it's coming across right to me, and the one we want to paint in this postcard is disturbing that notion and talking about how actually, oh, there's a cross connection to 1920s Japan here. And people are participating in a global way in these kind of new technologies. Of course it's true that Robert Johnson came from the Mississippi Delta and he didn't come from the streets of Chicago. You know, there is that there, but his music was always already conditioned for the microphone. That's the takeaway. And that this is intentional. These are intentional artists coping with complex circumstances and changes in technology and economics and politics and peace and war, but they're always intentional and they're always making choices. And so I would propound that we should be sensitive to and respectful of the choice making which is ongoing because I think the choice making helps us to connect with the experiences rather than reifying them. When you're writing history, right, you want to think about the agency of the people you're writing about. A trap you could fall into when you tell this story is you could say, well, Robert Johnson represents the authentic voice of the eternal bluesman that was always playing, and finally we got in there, and just before he got poisoned, we captured it. But in fact, to tell the story that way, however much fun it is, and comforting for some people, takes away his agency. That's one of the things that we want to attend to in this project, right, is to think about these stories, these postcards, and try and unpack them by looking at them in sort of different ways, you know, and, and trying to do that, we hope, in a manner that is also... Troubling, complicated, and rich. Yeah. So maybe on that note, we can fold up this second of our two postcards today and say thank you for listening. And we'll see you the next time. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch. Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. 
contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And if you like what we're doing, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show. And finally, if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast, check out episode one. Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University. Production by Seedpod Sound at seedpodsound.com. In our next episode, Soundscapes of War and Warship, I travel to Mozart's Vienna in order to rehear a familiar classic as a commentary on never-ending conflict about access to natural resources. Chris will immerse us in the global soundscapes of modern Islam via everyday technology such as cassette recorders and radio receivers. I'm Tom. And I'm Chris. Until next time.